This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. Today, our guest is Carla Kaplan, professor of American Literature at Northeastern University, who has been doing research at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Carla has just published a new book called Miss Anne in Harlem about white women who were involved in the um, political and cultural movement of the Harlem Renaissance. We're talking to Carla over Skype, so at times the audio quality may decrease a bit. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's great to be here. And we are happy to be able to talk to you. Can we begin with um, a brief description of what the Harlem Renaissance was? Sure, because not everybody knows about the Harlem Renaissance, although it is one of the most famous times and places in American history, because it became a moment and a place that was really famous not just across the nation but around the world as the nation's first place in which black Americans could claim for themselves the identity they wanted. So it became famous as a Mecca, almost a holy land for black self-definition and black self-determination. For black folks to say, we're not going to keep responding to white ideas of who we are. We are going to define ourselves for ourselves, by ourselves, and as ourselves. So the Harlem Renaissance is really a story about black self-affirmation and black cultural development, political assertion um, at this time of racism. And there were, it turns out there were a number of whites um, in New York and elsewhere in the country who supported that movement. Um, and we we have a lot of histories of the white men who supported the Harlem Renaissance and became involved in the Harlem Renaissance. But it turns out that the women who were involved were overlooked. And that's what your book is about, right? First, let's start with talking about um, why have they been forgotten? I think that part of the reason they have been forgotten is the difficulty of telling a story as layered as the story of the Harlem Renaissance is. And you've already pointed to one of the great ironies, which is that this is most famously a movement of black self-determination and self-definition, but it is also a biracial movement. There are whites involved at every level of the artistic and of the uh, politics of this movement. So whether we're talking about little theater or small magazine or newspapers or political organizations like the NAACP, they are dedicated to black self-definition, but always they involve progressive white people. And that's been a sort of complicated story to tell. How do you tell a story of black self-determination that is also multiracial? It's only fairly recently that we've begun to tell the story of the Harlem Renaissance as a biracial story. And as is so often the case, the men got the attention first. And the white men of the Harlem Renaissance, publishers like Alfred Knopf, um, cultural empresarios like Carl Van Vechten, 
white writers like Sherwood Anderson and H.L. Mencken got a great deal of attention for their activities, political and cultural, in Harlem. White women tended to draw less attention to themselves at the time. They often had less money in their own names to spend, and they lived during a period when it was considered unseemly and improper for women to draw public attention to themselves. And many of the white women of the Black Harlem Renaissance, even though they contributed mightily to the arts and the politics, still adhered to that dictum that proper ladies didn't draw much attention to themselves and often they hid their own work under a, a bushel barrel, as it were. They hid their own work to not be unseemly. And it's only recently that people have begun to ask questions about them. And my book is the first to say, let's tell the story of the white women who said, I want to be part of this black movement of self-determination and I want to contribute to it. Well, you point out in your introduction to the book that even if today we understand race as a constructed category, in the 1920s, it was still a very rigid line to cross, a very hard line to cross. Uh, and so as these women were at, uh, at the same time that they were trying not to call attention to themselves, they challenged rigid ideas about race just by being there. Is that, is that right? That is right. And it was not only was race a very difficult line to cross during this period, and again, I want to emphasize that you know some people think about this period as a you know big wild party where all kinds of taboos are falling by the wayside about artistic conventions and sexual behavior and social mores, and there's some truth in that. But this is also a period in which race lines are being drawn with much more vehemence than is true in most other decades that are part of the post-slavery epoch. So that's part of the background for this, that there are very rigid social lines about race in the 1920s, and they are different for men and women. So one of the reasons we haven't known much about these women is that they were not necessarily eager to draw a great deal of attention to themselves. But the principal reason we have not known as much about these white women as we have about white men is that it was very, very different for white women to embrace black culture in the 1920s than it was for white men to do so. White men were actually encouraged to embrace very small doses of black culture, almost medicinally. There was a widespread notion throughout the 1920s that modern, mainstream, white, middle-class American culture was washed out or eviscerated or lacking in some kind of vital energy and power and a very widespread idea that the way to animate mainstream male white American culture would be by small infusions of so-called primitive energies whether those were understood as Native American or African American and they were called primitive and the movement was called primitivism White men were encouraged by primitivists, and many of the modernists were also primitivists, to expose themselves to small doses of black culture that would revitalize them. Women, however, were not encouraged to do so. Women were seen as vulnerable to changing their core being if they exposed themselves to blackness to any great degree. So the notion 
around how much exposure whites could have to blackness without changing who they were was very different for men and for women. And it had a huge impact on the white women who did cross over. It's one of the reasons we have so few of them. But it also had a historical impact because they had double reasons to draw as little attention to themselves as they could. And those whose activities became known often faced violence, danger, and death threats because of what they did. And one of the women that you talk about who had precisely this kind of attitude, she she viewed black culture as being superior in some ways and necessary for revitalizing white culture, is a Texan, Josephine Cogdell Schuyler. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about her and her attitudes and her um, fate as a as a white woman who became involved with uh, black culture. Josephine Cogdell Schuyler has emerged for many readers as their favorite person in the book, which is very interesting to me. She was a woman born to great wealth and privilege in Granbury, Texas. She was the daughter of Granbury's bank founder and bank president. He also owned many, many, I don't even know how many hundreds or thousands of heads of cattle and many, many acres. The family had a great deal of money. The house is actually still standing and it is an inn now and you can see it, which is pretty interesting. I've stayed there twice. And she was always determined to run away from the life that she saw laid out before her in Texas. The life she was expected to lead was one in which she would marry a man of her social class and she would direct the household staff and she would do a little bit of philanthropy and, you know, arrange dinners. And she said, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't nearly interesting enough. I want to be an artist. So at 16, she eloped with a traveling salesman in a very failed marriage. It lasted just weeks left him and she made her way to San Francisco where she became what was then known as a new woman, a rebel woman, a woman breaking out of these gender constraints. She took a lover. He was a painter. She became his muse and his collaborator and his model. There are surviving nude photographs of her as a nude artist model. She lived with him for eight years and then in the late 1920s, she decided to go to New York because she had heard about what was happening in Greenwich Village. She got to Greenwich Village where all of the new women were flocking and all the modernists and the primitivists were producing all of this new artwork and she was bored to tears. She said, well, this stuff isn't that interesting. So she looked uptown to Harlem and she made her way to Black Harlem. She had been publishing some poetry anonymously in some of the black papers and immediately met and fell in love with the most well-known black male journalist in America. His name was George Schuyler. They married and they had a biracial daughter, Philippa, who was a genius and a piano prodigy and helped make her parents nationally famous. Philippa was written up in every newspaper and magazine across the nation, and it gave her parents a kind of a platform to disseminate their ideas about race. They believed very strongly that racial ideology was a myth, that our ideas about the so-called difference between black and white people were fictions that had been used for decades and centuries to oppress black people and to give white people unearned privileges, and they fought their whole lives against that idea of racial difference, which they saw as spurious. 
some other uh, white women who became involved in the movement um, were really dedicated to trying to expose some of the um, abuses of racial ideology. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular about Lillian Wood. And she's especially interesting because um, she was white, but people assumed she was black. How, how did that happen? Lillian Wood is an instance of what I call passive passing for black, which is to say people, as you say, assumed for decades she must have been a black woman and she never corrected the record, which is different than saying I am black. I'm not sure she ever did that. Lillian Wood was a woman from Ohio who, like many Western and New England women in the years after slavery, went south in the newly formed schools that were dedicated to educating a recently emancipated black population. Most white women who went to those schools, sometimes called Freedmen's Bureau schools, and the schools formed after the Freedmen's Bureau, didn't stay very long. Lillian was unusual because she stayed for four decades. She taught in a small, all-black college in Tennessee, and from that college in the 1920s, she wrote a novel about this rise of lynching that I was talking about earlier. She wrote a novel in which she imagines, in a kind of a wish-fulfillment way, that federal anti-lynching law could finally be passed. One of the biggest struggles black Americans engaged in in the 1920s was the attempt to pass federal anti-lynching legislation. And year after year, it came up for a vote in D.C., and year after year, it was voted down. And it was devastating and heartbreaking to black Americans who felt the U.S. government and the U.S. populace didn't really care. Looking at all of that, from Morristown, Tennessee, Lillian Wood wrote a novel about lynching, about the attempt to pass anti-lynching law, and she did a very unusual thing. She depicted in that novel, she portrayed white women as monsters. She portrayed them as complicit in the racial violence that was lynching mostly black men across the nation. And she made them seem monstrous for doing so, for being complicit, for going along with it. This was so unusual. It was so unheard of in literature to see white women as complicit in racial violence that everyone assumed the novel could only have been written by a black woman. Nobody could even imagine that a white woman would portray her own sisters, so to speak, in this way. And for years, she was described, she was listed in bibliographies. Her novel was always described as written by a black woman, and she never corrected that record. She, I think she liked being mistaken for a black woman writer. How did African-American writers respond to the novel um, when they discovered that uh, it wasn't written by a, a black woman. The people she lived with in Morristown, Tennessee, of course knew who she was and knew that she was a white writer. And they loved the novel and they were especially moved that a white woman would willingly um, critique other whites for their behavior. It was the kind of critique of whiteness that black folks had been waiting for for a very long time. Um, and that didn't really come from white women until somewhat later. There was a group that formed in the 1930s 
of Southern white women who joined with black women to protest lynching and to protest the, the racial violence that was then endemic throughout the nation. But that didn't happen until later. So in her own community, she became really quite a heroine for being willing as a white woman to stand up and to say white people have to change their behavior. The novel was a minor success in Harlem, and I don't think people knew she was a white writer. In fact, had they known she was a white writer, I think the novel would have been much more successful because so few other white women were standing up to say these sorts of things. When their identities became known, as Nancy Cunard's identity became known, a white female activist in Black Harlem from Britain who was very public about what she was doing, when her identity became known, she became a local heroine in Harlem for standing up, as did a playwright named Annie Nathan Meyer, who wrote an anti-lynching play called Black Souls, and within Harlem became a heroine for being a white woman who crossed social lines. I actually think if Harlem had known Lillian Wood was white, it would have done her a lot of good. Uh, on the other hand, um, some of the women that you describe were not received as well um, as Nancy Kennard, for example. Um, what made uh, What kinds of activities were white women involved in that were not so well received by the black community in, in, or the black activists in the Harlem Renaissance? One of the things I wanted to do in bringing this untold story to light, since I was the first person to tell this story of the white women of Harlem, is I wanted to express for readers the full range of white female participation in Harlem, from what today we could still learn from and consider pioneering anti-racist work on the part of women like Annie Nathan Meyer, and Josephine Cogdell-Schuyler and Nancy Cunard, to those women who really made critical mistakes and who always carried their own racism with them and never had much success in leaving it behind. One of those women would be Charlotte Osgood Mason, who was the principal female white patroness or philanthropist of the Harlem Renaissance, and she gave enormous amounts of money to black writers. Without her, we might not know Langston Hughes and his poetry, and we might not know Zora Neale Hurston and her anthropology and her novels. She was the one who funded them and many others. But she brought to that project of funding black geniuses a very set notion of blacks, and it was very much indebted to that movement I described as primitivism. She was really locked into this idea that blacks were more alive and more essential, but that they were also more intellectually backward and that they should help revitalize whites. So she's an interesting case of looking at someone who does a lot of good, but she does it for her own reasons and from a place we would today describe as racist. In her days, she was very much appreciated for the good that she did, but she was also very difficult for the blacks with whom she worked. So some of these women were reviled. Most of them have been, and their work has been hidden and forgotten. Um, but how uh, did the Miss Anns as a group have an impact on ideas about race and gender? They had an enormous impact on ideas about race and gender. This is a period not only of really rigid American ideas about race lines and really 
um, horrific American racism. But this is a period in, where, in which notions of identity are very fixed and in which people are encouraged to be one thing and to stay in their box. And lots of 1920s writers react against that. Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt is a famous parody of the way in which Americans, middle class middle western bourgeois Americans are being encouraged to be one thing and one thing only. So this is a kind of notion of identity at the time. And what the Miss Anns say is, we don't want to be stuck in a box. We want to be even the thing that we seem to be nothing like. So here are white women say, okay, not only do I want to participate in the Harlem Renaissance, but I'm black. I want to claim blackness for myself. And that puts an extraordinary pressure on American ideas of who we are and who we can be. And it's still a move we're struggling with. When people who say, I want to be something I don't look anything like, that's who I identify with, that's what I feel like, we're not sure what to make of that, even if we think that people should be free to define their own identities. So in their day, they were putting an enormous pressure on the idea that a, we should be stuck in certain identity boxes, but B, the idea that race is in the blood, that race is biological. They were part of an early movement that said, and now today still says, it's called social constructionism, that race is a social idea, that we create social ideas of race to serve our own purposes, that it's not biological, that it's not in the blood. And these women took that idea so far, they were not only saying, let us into the movement, they were saying, we want to be counted as black. It's a really amazing thing to do in the 1920s and 30s. It really is. And it's a, it's a collection of great stories that you've given us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It was great to talk to you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.